bonus episode of the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. I'm your host, Erin Prather Stafford. Today, we have curated a collection of thought-provoking clips from season one episodes, all focused on the power of creativity, fostering supportive communities, and embracing the inevitable missteps along the path to success. Get ready to be inspired. Emmy Matashita is an empowerment coach for freelance dancers and creatives. She is on a mission to help dancers embrace their worth and understand the entrepreneurial aspect of their artistry. In this clip, we talk about why artists, including dancers, need to avoid the comparison trap and the importance of knowing what chapter of your life you're living. I do want to touch on, you know, it's no secret that dance is a very physical art, obviously, but I imagine yeah. and there's like a trap with that because we live such a we live in such a visual society now with everything being online and I I would love to hear your thoughts kind of on the comparison trap everyone falls into it but I think dancers in particular probably definitely can find themselves looking at other people's performances looking at other people's photos and feeling kind of look at what they've done am I good enough to do anything like that and as a coach I imagine that's something you kind of help people process and work through and understand that they need to bring themselves and their unique art to the table and just quit with the comparison It's so easy to just be like, well, stop comparing yourself, right? But yeah, I mean, as humans, we are just prone to doing that, right? But also our society as well. It's not super friendly to girls anyway. We just look wise. We're like, oh, that that one, she's so much prettier than me or whatever. But yeah, and then in the dance world itself, it's like if you are a competition dancer, then you want to look like everybody else too. Or if you're a ballerina, like that's a whole nother realm. Like I never was a ballerina and I can't even imagine because... It wasn't too long ago that people had tons of eating disorders because of their the strict demands of the physical aesthetic of showing up as a, as a certain physique, right? So, yeah, there's a lot to battle with that. But with comparing to other people, the only thing that I, I can try to encourage in, in my clients and in talking to other dancers is just realizing that your unique value as, as a dance artist purely based on your individuality. Say that there's a teacher who teaches hip hop and another teacher, you know, teaches hip hop. Like those products and services that they're giving in in a business mentality, right? They're going to be completely different, even though they're teaching the same thing. Because this person is African-American male hip hop dancer. And then this one is a Latina middle-aged mom hip hop dancer, right? Like those are going to be completely different classes and vibes and you're going to learn completely different things from them, even though they're teaching the same thing. And so their uniqueness is what makes their product or service sing a little bit more and appeal to a specific crowd or a specific type of person. And so I think when you think about it that way, your own story and your own life experience informs your art and that is what you can give to the world to get value in return. There is no competition. There's no other you. There's no other person that looks like you, I mean, maybe, but, you know, not in the dimensions that all matter, like your your life story or the hurdles that you've overcome, your own personal mission and vision and values, that's all going to be packaged in what you give to the world. And so, yeah, there there isn't, right? That's the mindset that will help you succeed. But if you are always looking 
to somebody else and being like, oh, they're a better mover than you. You also have to be realistic. Like they're probably on a different journey than you. You know, they maybe they're 10 years ahead of you in training. And so, of course, they're going to have a little bit more fine-tuned moves, right? That's just being realistic. Or the fact that for me, like as a busy mom, like I look at other entrepreneurs and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're getting so much done. And I'm like, wait, I'm a mom of a toddler. So I need to show up for my son right now. So it's not realistic for me to compare myself to another person who's in a completely different life situation. And also another thing to say is whatever you determine as success for you is going to be completely different for another person. Like they might see success as, so bringing it back to this scenario where like I look at another entrepreneur and they're like a single male unwed making a business out of whatever. And I'm here. I am like, Oh my gosh, like they're so successful because they're making their business and have all these followers. But maybe their success metric is like they want a family. So they're not successful in their eyes, you know, but it's all perspective. And, but for me, I'm like, Oh, well I have reached my success as far as like, I wanted a family for so long. So I've got that, you know? So yeah, it's just being realistic with that. Everybody is on their own journey. So you can't compare yourself because there's totally different metrics of success and totally different stories that are told through the same products that we may serve. Julie Flanders is an award-winning songwriter, producer, and a best-selling poet. Co-founder of the internationally acclaimed band October Project, Flanders' prize-winning choral pieces and commissions have been performed nationwide, including at the Kennedy Center and Carnegie Hall. I asked Flanders if writing songs and poetry are intertwined. She answers that and also shares how she began a daily poetry practice when her son was young. Her first book of poetry is titled Joyriders. Were you always writing poetry, even when you were with, like, doing songwriting? I mean, I know they kind of flow together and intertwine, Mm -hmm. but did you kind of realize what you were actually also kind of gravitating towards writing poetry in your songwriting? Yeah, that's a great question, really, because songwriting and poetry are different. And for me, there's often a lot more of a bridge between them than there probably should be, because I was really thinking about this question and how the distinction between a song or a lyric and a poem for me is that in a song you have to really give up the ego of the words doing the work of the music so I'm always trying when I'm working in a song to just bow my ego into the wholeness that the music may tell the story and cleverness or you know more technique there are songwriters that are very impressive with how they write a song but then you don't feel it in your heart so I'm more of the feel it in your heart school of songwriting and trying to invite the listener to develop their own story of a song so there's a kind of participation and opening a portal for them to fill something in and not to be told what the meaning of it is and for poetry I think I've held a lot of that and the difference being that There's much more room for the words to be an instrument. And I was thinking about how in poetry for me, I retain lyricism as one of my primary elements, lyricism, mystery, rhyme, and a sense of flow, which are very songwriting connected. And then there are poets I really admire who have tremendous reference points for really specific use of language, like they can conjure a very striking image and use language in a more directorial, almost they're directing the reader to read the poem a certain way with their prowess. And I admire it because it's not easy to do, but it's not me either. But poetry is first for me. And even a lot of the songs that 
come out of poems end up being very different because we husk the poem for the best lyric part. But when a poem is just a poem, the space between the words and the way the words rub up against one another, to me, that's where the music of the poem is. Not necessarily in the words, but in how they're falling across time and space to make a music inside the reader or the listener. Why did you decide to finally publish Joyride? What made you kind of think, you know what, I'm going to put it all together. I'm going to put this out there. Well, people have been reading my poems and really requesting that I put them together like that. So I was working with a visual artist at that time, and he offered to typeset the text and create a cover for me. And I really loved his work. And then he became ill and was never able to finish that. So I found the photograph and I thought, you know, I just have to put them together and title them and get a table of contents. And it really is a book. So that was the first one. And it came from being a mother and being overwhelmed and deluged with stresses and strains. And my young child and my mother died and a lot of things happening, a lot of grief and no time. And I think no time was the main creative limitation. So I gave myself poetry practice that I did daily, which was to take two random words and whatever time I had available, it could be 10 minutes, it could be 20 minutes, not I don't think I ever had more than that. And I had to take the two words and I would feel whatever feeling I was having and I would wait for the music of that feeling to arrive as words. And then I would take the two words and I had to use them both in the poem and I had to finish the poem in one sitting and I gave myself the rule that I couldn't look back. I couldn't go back and rewrite the poem because that would enter a different part of the expectations of myself. And my only expectation of myself at the time was simply to give voice to creative expression. And so I've taught a lot of women that if you're mothering, that is a lot of your creative energy. If you're also working, that is a lot of your creative energy. But you need to make little spaces for yourself to create. And as a parent, I think that the greatest gift you can give a child is to demonstrate to them ways of belonging to themselves before they belong to the world through their own self-connection, whether that's reading or journaling or listening to music, which is a powerful one for many kids. It's like, how do you get a child to know that their inner world is sacrosanct and they need to spend time and energy in that space that's theirs alone, you know, not to be shared until afterward, then they can share the fruits of that. I really am glad that I put on that practice because it really changed my life a lot. It taught me I could get done a lot more than I thought I could get done in smaller increments of time. Felicia Bennett is a tour manager and founder with over eight years of experience in the live side of the music business. Bennett founded Get A Room Productions to expose more people, especially women of color, to tour management and help them become successful. In this clip, we talk about her advice for girls and women wanting to work in the live music industry. What advice do you have for a young girl who's dreaming of going into the music industry? I know internships was one of the things you recommended, but yeah. what else would you recommend for someone who's dreaming of, I'm maybe, and really does actually go, you know what, maybe I do want to be a tour manager. Or maybe I just want to be, a, you know, a manager in general and have yeah. artists that I help out. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, I think trial and error is so important, getting as many industry experiences experiences as you possibly can, as many internships, assistant positions as possible, 
But other than that, I would really say just don't be afraid to try new things, make mistakes. We all make mistakes. That will continue as long as you live. So I think that is something that I needed to be told when I was much younger because it's so easy to be intimidated by, you know, folks that are more accomplished than you and you don't want to embarrass yourself or what have you. But in roles like these, the way that you learn and become accomplished is by just diving in headfirst, especially tour management. But so many other jobs in this industry are experience-based. In order for you to become better, you simply have to do it. You have to face the different challenges, the different problems, and figure out how you work. You have to figure out how you communicate with people. You have to figure out how you problem solve, how you work under pressure as well. All of these things are a human thing. Across the board, whatever industry you're in, I think it's important to know these things about yourself, especially in the music industry, in a place where, you know, there's a lot of elements out here. You know, there's drugs, there's alcohol. Like, you have to be very secure in who you are and make sure that you're continuing to just get to know yourself and putting yourself in situations where you're surrounded by people that you trust as well. So I think that's really key. And something that I've learned over the years is just that fear gets you nowhere, honestly. You have to have courage. You have to take leaps of faith, but have a plan. Think ahead. Try not to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. It's okay to stand your ground. And honestly, it's encouraged. People will really rate you for that. And I think at the end of the day, you will be proud of yourself for that. And that's just a part of the learning and the growing that you can do. So you know, at the end of the day, take action, but just know that you got this, continue to work hard, do your best, show up, because at the end of the day as well, the music industry is a people industry. In order to get jobs and further your career, the more people you know, the better off you'll be. I've never applied for a job in touring. It's all been based on relationships that I have. So I think it's just really important to make sure that your your true, authentic self and you're you're just putting your best foot forward, really putting yourself out there. Network, network, network. Yeah, you got this. Fantastic advice. Hi, everyone. This is Erin. Have you heard of Creative Live? Creative Live is an incredible online learning platform that offers courses in all kinds of subjects, photography, self-improvement, art, writing, and web design, to name a few. I have personally taken several courses, such as A Brand Called You with Debbie Millman, and Workflow, Time Management, and Productivity for Creatives with Lisa Congdon. And I plan to take even more courses in writing, networking, and video production. If you've ever wanted to pursue a creative outlet, I highly recommend taking a look at Creative Live. It's a great way to improve your craft and broaden your knowledge. Girls That Create is part of the Creative Live affiliate program, which means if you click on the link in the show notes and purchase a course, we'll receive a small affiliate commission. Thank you for supporting us. She is brave, she is bold, she is you, and we want to tell your story. Are you ready to share your journey with us on Word of Mom Radio? Go to wordofmomradio.com and register as a guest. We want to tell your story because when you win, we all win. In 2017, Unsilenced Voices was formed to help survivors of domestic abuse and gender-based violence worldwide. The organization currently serves Sierra Leone, Rwanda, Ghana, and the USA. In 2022, Unsilenced Voices gifted over $33,000 to survivors in the USA, and in Sierra Leone, 
There are over 26 young girls who have been rescued from sex trafficking and domestic abuse and now going through vocational training school in order to better their lives. We need your help. Donations are critical in order for us to continue our work. We also need volunteers to help with research and development. Please visit unsilencedvoices.org for more information. Don't let the name fool you. StadiumBags.com is not just for sports fans. Our clear bags make it easier for you to get into any venue that you go to. And in today's world where we are so concerned about germs, the materials that our bags are made with are strong enough to stand up to the solvents that you can use to clean your bag so you know you come home safely. Check out StadiumBags.com. You'll see why we are the clear choice, because safety, it's in the bag. Maria Brito is a New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator. Her book, How Creativity Rules the World, The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold, was released in 2022. Maria shares her ideas and advice with thousands of social media followers weekly and through her newsletter and blog, The Groove. She and I talked about the role of failure in artists' lives and how entrepreneurship and the arts are tied together. And in the book, you say that those who create also fail. That's part of being part of the process. What have you learned from studying how artists handle failure, and what can we take away from those examples? You know, as I have known so many artists in my life, uh, more than 400, I don't think that they – that they take failure as people in other fields do. I think that they understand it is part of experimentation. I think that artists are very keen to try new things, and they accept that within that experimentation there is a failure, say, right? That if they try something new and it's not well-received, well, they try it at least, right? I think that One thing that I've also learned from artists is that failure is not personal. What failed was a project. What failed was a series that they tried to bring to the market differently, but not them. I don't want to generalize, but it is kind of common for most people to say, I am a failure, right? Like, I mean, this didn't work out. I didn't get the promotion. I didn't, the business didn't go to where it was supposed to go or I launched this particular project and it just didn't go anywhere or it didn't get the return that I was expecting. And I think that that's obviously a mistake that stops us from keep trying and keep doing things. And experimentation is really important for growth and for evolution without it. You know, we unfortunately do not have a lot to say and to learn from because everything is surrounded by guardrails and safety, you know, positions and whatnot. So failure is obviously, it's going to happen regardless of whether you want it or not. And there is a lot to be learned from failures because they are feedback. And they are important. And sometimes failures, if you're really smart enough, you can shell them and pick them back up later and see were they really a failure or 
the world wasn't ready, but now it is. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, my God, I was so early. I was, you know, I came up with this idea and the world wasn't ready. Well, just go and get it now, you know. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that because at that time the world wasn't ready, it's never going to be. I I think that, again, like all the things that limit our creativity, our growth, and our success is ourselves. And you mentioned in the book actually one of my favorite artists, which is uh, Helma F. Clint. And you also mentioned Sergey Brin and Larry Page, which are the Google guys, and you connect them. And with this term of invent, inventing the future, can you share what that means and why it's an idea that we should think about and it's also one worth discussing with kids? Well, look, I think that we have this idea of the future. It's something that happens to us instead of us being the ones who make it happen. And one of the most important ways for us and, and one of the, I would say, easiest ways for us to to obviously invent the future is to be very attuned to the present because whatever is happening right now is what gives us information and clues about what people do, what people want, what the world is doing. And as I said before, when you pay attention to what your kids are doing and you're taking ideas or clues, you are seeing a lot of what the future is going to be. And the I like the that you said, you know, how I connected Hilma and the Google guys because, in you know, in very specific ways, artists and entrepreneurs usually have the same kind of tools. And that's why this book is pretty much leaning on examples from both because the the habits and the thinking are pretty much alike, regardless of whether someone invents a phone and someone makes a painting. And this is very important because artists obviously are not bound by anything, by any rules. They can paint whatever, they can sculpt whatever, they can make film of whatever, and you know, nobody says, hey, stop, like, why are you making superhero movies of people who fly? Or why are you making movies with dolls like Barbie in like, that doesn't exist, you know? But at the same time, if you would have told me maybe, you know, 30 years ago that we were going to conduct this and I was going to be able to see you on a screen right. at the same time, it was a thing of Epcot Center in Disney World, you know, like that doesn't, it's like, it's not possible, Right. But it is because people are constantly thinking about how to solve problems and how to push the needle forward in the betterment of humanity or to fix a problem that really has bugged you. And it is within, you know, the realm of your expertise or you surround yourself with the people who actually have that expertise and get to bring that to humanity. And I think that all the tools and all the ideas that I wrote in the book have the ultimate goal of allowing people to be able to see the future and and to obviously do something that benefits them. And, and this is something that you're going to have to do many, many times in your lifetime because now, more than anything, and more than in any other time in history, the future arrives faster than what we would want it, right? Everything changes with such 
speed and it feels brutal, really. And uh, But this is the world and we are here for a reason. It is, nothing is random in the universe. I have always thought that everybody who's here right now has a special meaning and a special mission and a way to cope, you know, and to thrive pretty much with what we have been given. So it's it's not like an accident that we are here in this time. And if you can capitalize simple ways that give you clues about what's to come, then why not? Kelly Hoey is a networking expert who offers practical strategies to connect for success in the social media age. She coaches individuals and teams on professional network building and career-centered topics. We dive into why everyone, including creatives, should work on building their network before they need it. Why is it important to build a network before you need it? Oh, because it takes time. I mean, what makes networking challenging is you have to deal with other people. (laughs) You know, if this was an activity that we could just give you a checklist to follow and there was a guarantee at the end that you would get the result, I mean, that would be really fantastic. But this is a human dynamic. And therefore, you need to understand that there's a huge element that this is outside of your control. So you can send the perfect email. You can follow up. You can thank people. You can get the warm introduction. You can have known that person for years and, you know, fill in the blank of all the unknowns of things in their life. So that's why, you know, that kind of time to allow for the things that are outside of your control. When you're building relationships, you know, there is those interactions and a variety of interactions I always think is a good one. And I know we're going to talk about it. But you need those interactions because building relationships means you're building trust. And building trust takes time because trust is based on like a repeated pattern of behavior. Like, oh, I see you. You say you're going to do these things. I've seen you do these things. I've seen you do them multiple times. Therefore, I trust you. And that's when we will open up our networks. That's when we will make those bigger, I want to say, relationship outreach and embracing than just sort of one-off where I could say, oh, yes, I can give you a piece of advice. Thank you for calling, you know, their end of discussion. But we, we, we're much more generous when there's that layer of trust, and trust takes time. I know one of the things that frustrates you is when someone pops in on LinkedIn and is just like, hey, I want to be part of your network, and you are like, I have no idea who this person is. I have never seen this person, and they're just basically saying, you looked cool on LinkedIn, let's, you know, let's network. And it's kind of like, no, because that trust factor hasn't been established at all. And I think that's something we all need to recognize is that, especially with our network, it's not about how many, it's really about the quality versus the quantity. Exactly. And when those social media metrics, the ones that work on TikTok or the ones that work on, you know, back in the day on Twitter, the ones that work on Instagram, don't apply that to a platform like LinkedIn. That there's, in terms of who are your actual connections, you need to be able to vouch for people. I mean, I know there's people I'm connected to on LinkedIn that it is a very acquaintance-level connection. It is not a deep connection. So if someone said to me, hey, could you introduce me to, 
one of those acquaintances. I'm like, you know what? I'm connected to them. I think we met at this event or we crossed paths here or, God, I worked with them 10 years ago. That's it. Like, I, can I make a warm introduction? Not really. Go ahead and say to this person, hey, I see you're connected to Kelly Hoey. I know Kelly from this. This is why I wanted to talk to you. But, you know, kind of go with God and good luck. But also, as you and I are talking and I'm kind of going, you know, acquaintance level and sort of flipping up, sort of casual about it. Those casual acquaintance, light relationships are really important. And it goes back to that time. It takes time to build deep relationships. But if we only have a network of those deep relationships, we're restricting where our imagination and our ambitions can go. So you need deep relationships, but you also need to embrace these casual acquaintance level relationships where you don't know a lot about them. And that's okay because, like I said, you don't have all the time in the world, but those casual interactions can produce some of the greatest variety in your career. Our last clip features empowerment advocate Eliza Van Court. She is the author of A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard, where she shares valuable advice for women and girls on claiming their space, overcoming nerves, and dealing with societal expectations. Eliza and I discuss the importance of practicing speaking and her advice for girls who dream of being on stage and pursuing a career in the arts. I think creatives are often really hard on themselves because they think, why am I not getting this right off the bat perfect? And it takes work and it takes time. And, you know, even learning how to perform in a space, like even to speak. I think people don't sometimes don't realize that speakers and presenters, like they have practiced and practiced and practiced till they're blue in the face before they get up in front of someone. Everybody on TED has practiced. I mean, the secret to speaking is the more spontaneous they look, the more they've probably done the speech and have every little moment memorized and they know how the audience laughs and where they laugh and practice does not make you look automatized. You know, it, it makes you look spontaneous because you're not reaching for words. So absolutely. I mean, no one would ever put someone, I always say to people when I do coaching and I do workshops on persuasive communication or public speaking, no one would ever put you on the top of a hill with skis on and be like, hey, I'm going to push you down here and you should just intuitively know how to ski. No one would do that. It'd be absurd. And yet we're like, hey, you should go do a speech. Good luck. <laughs> They've never done it before. You know, direct instruction and, and communication is uh, communication is absolutely learnable. And it absolutely is something that if you commit to doing it, you can get really good at it. It's like anything else. It just takes work. And it's so essential, though, to whatever career you choose. That's one of the things that frustrates me is that I see everyone trying to move ahead, you know, get rise up in whatever career they've chosen, but no one has ever sat down and said, hey, how are you going to sell yourself, your idea, your product, your dream? How are you going to promote yourself to others? No one sits down and says, let me show you some skills about this. Absolutely. Unless they go seek it out themselves, like in speech class. Yeah. And most speech classes are truly terrible. They're gendered, you yeah. know, so they work really well for men and not so well for women. And so they teach things, you know, I have so many people in workshops say, well, I did this speech class and I got worse. And I say, what did they teach you? And it's something that's unbelievably gendered. And so it's really important that either you make a real effort to make sure every gender that you're working with 
is is being accommodated and you're really listening and trying to customize or just work with, you know, I'm going to do a thing for just women or just men because we really do have different societal things that we face and therefore different communication patterns can emerge. But I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously it's my passion, but I see how people's lives are transformed from one workshop, (laughs) one workshop, because no one's just ever taught this stuff before. And once you learn it, it's so empowering. It's like seeing the, you know, the coding of the matrix. It's like, get it. What three pieces of advice would you give to girls who are interested in pursuing? They kind of dream about doing a TED talk or speaking or just acting or being up on a stage, but being this, you know, presenting something, whether it's themselves or an artwork, what three pieces of advice would you give them? The first piece of advice is parents love you with all their heart. I know I'm a mom and they're going to be afraid if you're going into the arts. They're going to say, oh, don't do that. You know, you're going to end up being on, you know, drugs on the street. (laughs) It's a terrible life. It's very hard. And I have taught countless people. And what I have found is it's a war of attrition. People who stick with it will end up in some part of the arts and they will be very, very happy really happy. If you give up and you become an accountant and you don't want to be an accountant, you're going to be miserable. So do what you love and success will follow and try to drown out the noise of people who say, you know, I don't, sorry, you know, you're not gonna be able to do this. It's hard. You know, all the good things in life that are worth doing are hard. The, the second thing is when you're talking to somebody, you know, understand that people often will put you in a box. They'll say, you know, oh, you're this because you're that at that age. And that doesn't mean anything. I was dyslexic. I couldn't read forever. I was a very late reader. I have probably minor dysgraphia, which means that my handwriting is terrible. So people thought that I wasn't very smart because back in the day we weren't typing, we were writing. And it took me a long time to even know how to write. And so people didn't really associate with me as being a very good student. And in high school, I sort of got my groove. And then in college, I was testing out of writing requirements. So, you know, who you are now, like, you don't know who you are now. You have no idea. So how could anyone else know who you are? So allow yourself to grow and breathe and discover what you love. And don't let the voices of anti-mentors dictate what you're going to do with your life. And I think the final thing is you are going to be facing a lot of people who will not treat you well, particularly if you're a woman of color, and they're not going to do it on purpose. They're just going to have certain assumptions. Sometimes not treating well will be mansplaining, but sometimes it'll be straight up, you know, not hiring you because, you know, they're used to their friend Bob applied and they don't realize that if they only let Bob from their fraternity or whatever it is get, you know, my friend who's in a fraternity told me this, you know, if he hires us all, he's like, I realized at one point I can't hire all my fraternity brothers because then I'm really not letting in other demographics. So, you know, make, people are going to do that. And the thing that you need to do to do a counterpoint to that is build relationships with people of all backgrounds, with women, with men, with people of all races. Diversify your network and build your network. If you can do that, then you're really untouchable because when things are hard, you're going to have people to catch you. And it can be hard to build relationships with people who don't look like you or don't have the same background, but it is so worth it. Build your network and make sure it's not all people who look like you. That is transformative. Thank you for listening to the Girls That Create podcast on Word of Mom Radio. 
Sign up for our newsletter, link in the show notes, so you'll know when Season 2 launches. And thank you to all our wonderful guests who came on the show for Season 1. We will close out with our theme song from Smith Sisters and the Sunday Drivers. Till next time, this is Aaron Prather Stafford. She is sure. She is-